Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Legalism, pictured in the parable of the Good Samaritan, is alive and well. As a result, a 15-year-old African-American boy in Chicago is not. Delete all that first part, Eddie, for the uh, podcast. In a case that drew national attention and a rebuke from then-President Bill Clinton, the family of a slain Chicago teenager has settled a lawsuit against the hospital whose workers refused to come to his aid while the boy lay bleeding just steps away from the hospital entrance. The family of Christopher Searcy, who was 15 in May of 1998, died of a gunshot wound to the abdomen. They settled the lawsuit for $12.5 million, said Joseph Power, a lawyer who represented the family. Here's what happened. On a warm spring evening in May, Christopher was playing basketball with a few friends half a block from Ravenswood Hospital. Three teenage Latino gang members looking for a black target approached and shot young Cersei in the abdomen. His frantic friends carried him to within 30 feet of the hospital and then ran inside for help. The emergency room personnel refused to go outside to assist the dying boy, citing a policy that only allows them to help those who are inside the hospital. While bystanders pled with the hospital staff to get the boy into the hospital, he lay in a pool of blood unconscious. When after several minutes the ambulance still had not arrived, they finally gave in and carried Cersei into the emergency room. But by then, nothing could be done to save his life. It's a real tragedy, isn't it? As is often true, when we legalistically insist on the letter of the law, the needs of others are overlooked. By holding to standard operating procedures, the royal law of love was completely ignored. Now, initially, hospital administration vigorously defended their ER's lack of involvement. But only after an outpouring of community outrage did Ravenswood Hospital reverse its policy of treating only those inside of its doors. It was Jesus who observed, Woe to you teachers of the law, you hypocrites! You give a tenth, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. This is the danger of following the letter of the law. We can keep the law, but love can be the thing that is left out. We're going to see an example of that this morning. Verse 8, please. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. And that day was a Sabbath. If you remember from last week, Jesus had asked a man who had been paralyzed 38 years if he wanted to be made well. 
The man begins to make excuses, but Jesus cuts through all of that and simply tells him in verse 8 to rise, take up your bed and walk, and the man was immediately cured. Unlike many alleged modern healings, Jesus' healings were complete and instantaneous with or without faith. This one proves the point since the man exhibited no faith in Jesus at all. Yet he was healed instantly and wholly. As we touched on last week, one of the cruelest lies of some of the contemporary faith healers is the people that they fail to heal are guilty of sinful unbelief, a lack of faith, or a negative confession. In contrast, those whom Jesus healed did not always manifest faith beforehand, and this man is a prime example. The Lord healed him simply through the power of his spoken word. He commanded the man to do the very thing he was unable to do, but in his command was the power of its fulfillment. You could say that on that day, impotence met omnipotence. Jesus gives him a command that is impossible to do in his own strength, but if he will just obey the command, he will discover that God always couples with his commands the ability to obey those commands. Do we think Jesus is going to give that command and then just bust out laughing when the man tries to get up but falls on his face? Of course not. That's a blasphemous thought concerning the Lord. Then why do we think that's what he's doing concerning the commands he sometimes gives us in our lives? What I mean is we can read in our circumstance, rise, take up your bed and walk, and we look at the command that God gives us in terms of putting off and putting on or not doing that and instead doing this, and we say at least to ourselves, yeah, God, but you don't know my story. You don't know what I've been through. I mean, I know this seems to work for everybody else, but it just doesn't seem to work for me. I'm the one exception the scripture has failed on. But listen to me. God will never have us step out in context on any of his promises and have us being embarrassed for having done so. And it really is the moment of truth. It is to me the great difference between those I've seen over the years who in the body of Christ exhibit wholeness and moving forward in fruitfulness in the kingdom of God and those who just become bitter and start withering away. It is those who look at his word and acknowledge it as a living word and step out on that word, discover his power there and continue in a life of purpose and the other group who much like the lame people in our account, just stay in the same place year after year after year. And it is heartbreaking to see. But here's the great news. All that can change this morning. If we are honest enough to admit, Lord, I've been lying here paralyzed by this or that for X amount of years, and I'm just sick and tired of being sick and tired. Would you help me to be all that you want me to be? I promise you that is one prayer the Lord will answer. 
Now, it would have been great if the story would have ended there with the man being healed and all involved just celebrating this miracle. But unfortunately, the end of verse 9 says, and that day was the Sabbath. Look at verse 10 with me. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is a Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. This miracle would have caused no problem except that it occurred on the Sabbath day. But think about this. The Lord certainly could have came a day earlier or even waited a day, but he wanted to get the attention of the religious leaders. The law lays it down that the Sabbath day is to be kept holy, and on that day, no work is to be done. And that can be a great principle. But these Jewish legalists had a passion for definition. So they asked, what is work? All kinds of things were classified as work. For instance, to carry a burden on the Sabbath day was considered work. But now, a burden has to be defined. So the scribal law would lay it down in many areas. Let me give you just a few examples to give you an idea of what would constitute a burden. A burden is food equal in weight to a dried fig. Enough wine for mixing in a goblet, milk enough for one swallow, honey enough to put on a wound, paper enough to write a customs house notice upon, and ink enough to write two letters of the alphabet. Now eventually, some Jews decided to sit down and put together a set of guidelines for what could and could not be done on the Sabbath. They came up with a list of 39 main tasks which could not be performed on the Sabbath. Now, as with most laws, there were loopholes and exceptions to these Sabbath day restrictions. For example, a person was not allowed to prepare food or go on a journey on the Sabbath. Now, listen to this quote that I found concerning this. He writes, The difficulty lay in the fact that the leaders of Israel had added man's regulation to God's law, and this had reduced the observance of the Sabbath to the worst forms of legalism. For instance, the law said that a man was not to travel on the Sabbath day. But what is traveling, asked the scribes? What constitutes a journey? In answering this question, they then developed the concept of a Sabbath day's journey, which was roughly a thousand yards. So a man could walk that far on the Sabbath, but to walk more than that was a sin. If, however, a rope was tied across the end of a street, then the whole street technically became one house, and a man could walk a thousand yards beyond that rope. Or, if he deposited enough food for a meal at any given place on a Friday night, he the next day could walk to eat it, walk to it, eat his meal, thereby technically establishing a home, and then walk a thousand yards more. He closes by saying, If he were clever enough at this, I suppose that a determined man could walk halfway across Palestine. 
The same logic also occurred in this way. Take a man who is out walking. He spits. Is that work? Believe it or not, it depends on what happens to the saliva. If it goes into the dirt and makes a slight furrow, then that is plowing and it is considered work. But if it hits a rock, no work is done. So under this system, being religious on Saturday more or less depended on which way you spit. Now Jesus addresses this sort of thing in Matthew 12, 8 where we read, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Departing from there, he went to their synagogue. And a man there was there who had a, hand, a withered hand. And they questioned Jesus, asking, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, What man among you, if he has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and it was restored to normal like the other. So it is good to do good on the Sabbath. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. Keep in mind that in their regulations, the Jews specifically said you could do no healing on the Sabbath day. So let's say a man was bleeding to death. You could put a tourniquet around him to prevent him from dying, but you could put no ointment on the wound that might help bring forth healing. So Jesus asked, Why is it that your regulation says that if a sheep falls into a pit on the Sabbath, it's okay to bring him out, but a man cannot be healed on the Sabbath? Jesus established the Sabbath. He was God. This was his claim. Imagine Jesus having the nerve to act like God in everything and being so comfortable with it. Thus, he could alter the Sabbath, suspend it, or even remove it, as the case may be. In the same way today, Jesus makes a claim to be the Lord of our Sabbaths, our habits, our aspirations, our abilities, in our lives. And so these guys are all over this guy for being cured on the Sabbath day. This amazes me. If I would have been him, I might have said, I gave you guys 38 years to heal me and you didn't do anything. So get off my back, Jack. Or get off my back, Jack and I, it would probably be more linguistically more accurate. This is another reason why God didn't put me in the Bible. But instead of rejoicing over the wonderful deliverance of this man, the religious leaders condemned him for carrying his bed and thereby breaking one of their laws. Instead of rejoicing that he was healed, they castigated him for breaking one of their trivial rules. They were far more concerned with legalistic regulation than with the man's well-being. The false religion of Judaism, like all false systems of religion, cannot change the inside, so it is only left to manipulate the outside.
Isn't this incredible? I mean, here's a guy lame for 38 years, suddenly walking around, and the clergy is uptight and upset. In all fairness, however, although the violation of tradition might not be a point of contention for you and me, we can get just as upset when Jesus violates our expectations. Like when he doesn't work the way we are claiming, believing, or praying for. We can have our own arena of anger. It's not tradition, but it is expectation. Now, Lord, we say, we fasted, we spoke the word, we believed, but you didn't come through, and we're ticked off. Oh, we might not say it that straightforwardly, but when Jesus blows apart our expectations, just as he blew apart Jewish tradition, we can get angry. Once again, religion can make you blind. Rather than rejoicing that a man is healed, the Jews were upset that he was carrying his bed. That's what the law always does. When you become all bound up in regulations, traditions, and religious rituals, your heart becomes cold and hardened towards people. You continually judge them and find fault with them. Religion, apart from relationship, will make you a pompous, snooty, holier-than-thou Pharisee. Orthodox theologian Alexander Schmemann wrote in one of his journals, One can love religion like anything else in life, sports, science, or even stamp collecting. One can love it for its own sake without relation to God or the world or life. Religion fascinates. It can be entertaining. It has everything that is sought for from a certain type of person. Aesthetics, mystery, the sacred, a feeling of one's importance, and exclusive depth. But that kind of religion is not necessarily faith. That is so true. But please listen to me. Legalism is not the presence of rules, but the wrong attitude towards those rules. Legalism assigns to the rules an authority God never meant them to have. The law is not the problem. The problem is man's inability in keeping the law. Case in point. Imagine you were Noah. God told you he was going to destroy the world because of sin. But he has decided to save you and your immediate family. And sure enough, the rains come and the entire world is flooded. Now, if you were Noah, you would have to know that God is deadly serious when it comes to sin. So I bet, out of fear and reverence for God, Noah never sinned again, right? Let me read you Genesis 9.20. Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and become drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. 
Ham the father of Canaan saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. If you think about it, this is almost a repetition of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Follow me on this. After the flood, Noah was the source of the human race. But not long after that, it's recorded that Noah drank from his vineyard and in the process got drunk. So we could say that in a sense, like Adam, he took of, of, of a forbidden fruit and sinned. And as a result, like Adam, he was naked and ashamed. And also, like Adam, his sin is covered through no act of his own, but because of this, there will be a curse on one of his sons. Doesn't that remind us of what happened to Adam and Eve? The source of the human race took a forbidden fruit, showed his guilt through his nakedness, received a covering himself did not make, and because of his sin, also brought about a curse. This teaches us that the problem with man is in his past or his environment. No, the problem with man is a rebel's heart. We're going to see this all through the pages of the Bible, that there is nothing outwardly or inwardly that can change the heart of man. The only way you can change him is to kill him by giving him a substitute to die in his place and put God's spirit within him and give him a new heart. The problem with man is man. Be it Adam or Noah or Moses or Abraham, the problem is always man. Look at verse 12 with me. Then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. The healed man explained the extraordinary reason for his minor violation of the Pharisees' rules. By saying, He who has made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your bed and walk. But take note of the glass half-empty perspective of the Pharisees, which would be comical if it wasn't so tragic. They countered, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? I think any normal person would have been at least a little intrigued by the man's instant healing. But the Pharisees bypassed an opportunity to celebrate the grace of God in order that they might ferret out a potential threat to their authority. Let me put that into perspective. Imagine you had a neighbor who had been paralyzed from the neck down by an accident more than 30 years ago. One Sunday morning, just around 6 o'clock, the sound of a lawnmower jolts you from a deep and satisfying sleep. Annoyed, you bolt to the front door to see who would be so insensitive 
as to rattle every window on the block with that infernal noise so early on a day of rest. Upon seeing your formerly paralyzed friend gleefully mowing his lawn in perfect health, what do you think you would say? If you're a normal person, you would say, Rufus, what happened? How are you not paralyzed? But if you're a Pharisee, you would scream, Rufus, it's Sunday morning, turn that stupid thing off. Once again, legalism blinds people. I wonder, why didn't the lame man know who healed him? Was it because Jesus was busy posing for publicity pictures? No. Was it because he was talking to his agents about being on the cover of Judaism Today? No. Was it because he was giving an interview on Christian radio? No. The man didn't know who healed him because Jesus simply left the scene. I really like this. After enabling the man to do the impossible, Jesus just splits. The Greek word withdrawn actually means to dodge. But Jesus finds the man in the temple and warns him with these words. See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing comes upon you. Think of that. This man has just been miraculously healed after 38 years. You would think Jesus wouldn't have to tell him not to sin anymore. But once again, Jesus knows the heart of men. Now, many scholars believe this man's lameness was caused by a sexually transmitted disease. Whether or not this was the case, Jesus' warning was very pointed and practical. The Lord said, You've been made whole. Now, don't sin anymore. I want you to walk in a new way. The Lord's sobering warning reflects an important biblical truth. Although scripture is clear that illness is not always an immediate result of personal sin, it also teaches that some sicknesses are directly related to deliberate disobedience. For example, after committing adultery and murder, David cried out, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Along these same lines, Moses warned Israel, If you are not careful to observe all the words of this law which are written in this book, to fear this honored and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring extraordinary plagues on you and your descendants even severe and lasting plagues and miserable and chronic sicknesses. He will bring back on you all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid, and they will cling to you. Also, every sickness and every plague which is not written in the book of the law, the Lord will bring on you until you are destroyed. Even in the church age, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, For this reason, because of your sin... Many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you are dead. So I think the most natural understanding of the Lord's warning then 
is that the man's illness was the result of a specific personal sin on his part. And if the man persisted in unrepentant sin, Jesus warned that he would suffer a fate infinitely worse than 38 years of debilitating disease, namely eternal punishment in hell. Jesus doesn't want this man to misunderstand his healing in his life without understanding the seriousness of sin, and so he tells him, don't assume that the next time there will be a miraculous healing if you go back to your old ways. Treat what God has done for you in a changed life as the precious gift that it is and protect it. And if you do that, then you won't need a second healing as it relates to these things. The Bible teaches us that we should not presume on the grace of God. Paul would later write, Should we continue sinning that grace may abound? His reply, certainly not. The Living Bible says, no way, Jose. Not really. But my favorite translation of that verse is the J.B. Phillips, where he says with typical British flair, what a ghastly thought. Let's just be honest this morning. We sometimes like to talk and act like sin isn't fun. Like it doesn't ever feel good or bring at least temporary happiness. The truth, though, is it often does. Unfortunately, it never lasts and ultimately brings much greater pain. But in the moment, it can be fun. There's a reason that some people sleep around or get hammered on the weekends or experiment with drugs. They experience temporal earthly pleasure. They may say it makes me feel good or it helps me to blow off steam or it it feels good to be wanted by someone. As we close this morning, back in the 1600s, a Puritan named William Gurnall wrote a trilogy of books about the armor of Ephesians 6 entitled The Christian in Complete Armor. All three are fabulous books that you can get pretty cheap off Amazon. Listen to this excerpt. Gurnall writes, The devil makes his victims expect pleasure in sin by whispering provocative promises to them. But the benefit of sin is similar to the luxury which an island in the West Indies offers. Luscious fruits grow there, but these delicacies are seasoned with intolerably scorching heat by day and a swarm of stinging pestilence at night. Thus, it is impossible for the dwellers to enjoy the delicious fruit because they can neither eat comfortably nor sleep well. This adversity made the Spaniards call the place the comforts of hell. And it is true. What are the pleasures of sin but the sweets in hell? We'll come back next week and we will see how Jesus answers these Pharisees. And Father, we know that sin, it can be so tricky and we can be so easily deceived. And it's why we need, Lord, to stay in your word, stay in prayer, stay in fellowship. All the things you have provided, Lord, for us so that we do not have to fall into sin. 
I pray that you would make that uh, just a, a burning desire in every heart represented here, starting with mine. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.